Father, I want to thank you for an absolutely beautiful, awesome day. This is an amazing day to be alive, and we're going to choose to rejoice and be glad in it. I want to thank you for this life that we have discovered in Christ, and it flows from Christ through your Spirit. We have access to it every day, and I pray, God, that you would allow us to experience this abundant life. Father, we don't want to just, as it were, touch your hem. We want the whole thing, God. We don't want just part of this life. We want it all. We want the abundant life. And as we talk about this life in the Spirit today, would you birth something supernatural in us? Would you envision us? As we even talk about things like prayer and revival, I ask you, God, that you would birth something uh, marvelous in our lives as we look at this book of Galatians and discover all of the meat and its application and how we, even as Christians, can be transformed by these truths. So we invite you here, Spirit of God, guide us into all truth, be our teacher, and Spirit of God, would you personally apply these principles to our lives? Go beyond what I can say and you, Spirit of God, you, you speak to each heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Okay. Um, how many of you read uh, Galatians? You've read Galatians? Okay. Um, how many of you, I didn't ask you to do this, and I, I have, that's my bad, but how many of you read an introduction to Galatians? Okay, I am going to encourage you, when you read through a book, before class, also read an introduction. That's going to give you some overview background and such. And if you happen to have something like the NIV Study Bible, you will come across in the introduction something called the the North Galatian Theory and the South Galatian Theory. Um, I'm not going to get into that because that is completely irrelevant to our understanding of Galatians. I love little details and facts, and I enjoyed this when I did it in seminary and get a load of this. We spent two to three hours talking about it, looking at chapter two. Is Galatians chapter two, did that happen in Acts 11 or Acts 15? There is a little bit of relevancy to that question as you read through Galatians, but so little, I'm going to skip all of that, and I think you'll thank me for it later. I want to jump right into the main controlling question that Paul, without telling us, is asking, and it is this. What is the place of the law? What is the place of the law? If we do not understand the place of the law, then we will end up, listen to this, we will end up, number one, preaching a different gospel. And even if we kind of get enough of the gospel to truly be saved, if we live in this misunderstanding of the place of the law, then we will become powerless believers. That's how significant the answer to this question is. What is the place of the law? What does the law accomplish? What does it do? You have a question already about my questions? No, I'm just, it's a rhetorical question. Thank you. That is the question that we are going to spend the next hour and a half discovering the answer to. But here's our problem. Today, our question tends to be how much of the law do we obey? Do we obey the ceremonial law? 
Should I eat shellfish? Should I observe the food laws? Do I have to keep the Sabbath? And these are our questions. And there's a denomination that really focuses on this called Seventh-day Adventism. Um, But that is not the question that Paul is going to answer. Now, I, I do believe that when we answer this question, what is the place of the law? It's at least going to point us in the right direction to answer this question. How much of the law do we keep? But because people come to Galatians with this question, they end up misunderstanding the phrase under law found like five times in Galatians. OK, or under the supervision of the law. We're, we're going to get to what that Greek word actually is very, very key, in fact. But we're going to misunderstand this. Because we're coming with the wrong question. That is how important it is when you come to Scripture asking the right question. What's that? iRobot? And where's this? I'm sorry. That is the wrong question. And, and he does not give an answer. And, and when we come to this question, how much of the law do we keep? God is saying, I'm sorry, that's the wrong question, at least for this book. Now, I do want to touch on that, but I'm going to do it really briefly because the answer to that is irrelevant to this book, okay? Because I want us to focus on the right question, the main question. But it is a question that we have today. I've gone over it when we went through the book of Romans, and so I'm only going to touch on it a little bit. This is a huge word, antinomianism. Antinomianism... Namos means law, anti means against, so antinomianism are people that believe that the law does not apply today. That is the Mosaic law. None of it applies today. Now, they come in two categories, I I venture to say, and then there might be a third or fourth that is small, but first one says none of the law applies except the law of Christ, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only law. Everything else falls under that. Um, and there are major problems with that, okay, that I'm not going to get into that I got into when we went through Romans. The other one is none of the law applies but the New Testament commands. And so the New Testament authors basically looked at the Old Testament moral law or the law as a whole and said, let's get rid of that and we're going to rewrite the moral law of God, and that's what's contained in the New Testament, okay? And if anything, any of those laws were not reiterated in the New Testament, we don't follow them, okay? Both of those views are, are uh, hold to the antinomian. They would be considered antinomian. However, those who fall into this category hate this title, and I can understand why, because they would say, I'm not against the law. The law is holy, good, and right, it's just that the law is not for believers, it's for unbelievers, because the law convicts them of sin and leads them to Christ. So the only time I'm ever going to turn to the Mosaic law is to use, like the Ten Commandments, to convict sinners of their sin. I will not, I, I will not apply it to myself, I will only apply the New Testament laws. So do you understand then antinomianism? You would never want to ask someone, oh, so are you an antinomian? They will always say, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, that is offensive. And I can understand this because 
they are antinomian. They're against the law as it applies to them as Christians. But they use the law, and they believe in a right way, to simply bring sinners to the conviction of sin to lead them to Christ. Now, that is a place of the law we're going to get into. But I'm just going to say these brief things, and I'm going to rattle them off. I'm going to base it. You write down scripture passages, but this is just pretty much a a quick overview. I'm going to take like one to two minutes, and then we're jumping right into this main question for the rest of the time, okay? All right, because again, this is not the question, how much of the law do we keep? I am going to suggest that we keep the moral law, the moral law. But there's an element that drastically changes that Galatians talks about, and that has to do with the place of the law. And it's very different than in the Old Testament. But if you don't get this difference, you're going to step back from Galatians and say, well, I'm not under law, so let's get rid of it all. And you would be making a serious mistake. Here's why. Number one, there is a, all, the rest of these are scripture verses except the first one. This one is a principle. God, Excuse me, the moral nature of God, that is his holiness, never changes. If it was right when God created the world and right when he told Moses what to write down, it's right today. Or if it was wrong back then, it's wrong today. Because the morality of God does not change. The moral nature of God, stealing, murder, lying, etc., that does not change. And so the moral law, simply the Mosaic law, The moral law, you understand the moral law, ceremonial law, the moral law reveals God's moral nature. So that's the principle. Number one, number number two, John 15, excuse me, John 14, 15. He says this, if you love me, you will obey what I command you. So it's not like there's suddenly no laws now and we are just simply led by the Spirit, okay, that's taking a very biblical concept that we're going to get into today, led by the Spirit, and totally misunderstanding the place of the law in this. Okay? All right. Um, but Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command you. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Honor your father and mother. Paul uses the Old Testament moral law with authority. He acts as if, hey guys, This moral law here, the fourth commandment, actually has authority and speaks to you today. Number five, excuse me, number four, Matthew 5, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he basically says the Old Testament law is only the starting place. He calls it the letter of the law. Let me use an example. Jesus Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He doesn't say, let me erase that. Instead, he says, but I say unto you, whoever lusts in his heart, or whoever looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, has committed adultery with her already. Whoever lusts after a woman has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Okay? So he goes to the spirit of the law. So I'm going to say this, that... Yes, the moral law applies to us, but Jesus' point is, hey, that is only the starting place. 
the moral nature of God is not just the letter of the law. If, if we, if we were to talk about the holiness of God and all that that encompasses, what is right and what is wrong, there would be thousands and thousands, millions of laws, and there aren't. And so we must be led by the Spirit to understand the spirit of the law, okay? And being led by the Spirit, again, is so much more than that, but, okay? So Jesus says, okay, we're going to keep the moral law, but we need to go a lot deeper with this, guys. Number five, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13, it says this, this is the covenant I will make. This is the new covenant. Is what he's, he's actually quoting from Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Does that sound like God's getting rid of the law? No. Instead, in, if it being external, it is now going to be in your heart. Then he goes on in a later verse and he says, kind of summing it up, he has made the first one, that is the first covenant, obsolete. See, the covenant as a whole has become obsolete, but it re, but we retain in the new covenant the moral laws in our hearts and minds. And Ezekiel, this is number six, Ezekiel 36, 27, he puts it this way. And this is what we're, this is what more towards the end we're going to really get into. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That does not sound like to me that God, his, that his intention was to get rid of the moral law, set it aside and rewrite it in the New Testament or set it aside completely and only obey the law of love. So the new covenant, get, folk, get this, get this. The new covenant is spirit empowered obedience. That's what he's getting at there. You know, it, they could not keep the law. I mean, I don't know what that would be like. I've got the spirit of God in me. The more I rely on the spirit, the more I'm able to obey. We need to flesh that out actually later, but in the old covenant, they didn't have the spirit in them. How hard is that? They didn't have the spirit in them. And so consequently, when they were told, hey, you need to do this and do this and do this, it became this huge weight that they could not bear. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to so change you. I'm even going to put my spirit in you. And this burden will be so light. Follow me. That will be so light. And But even as Christians, and we're going to need to get into this, even as Christians, that can be hard. Why? Because we still have this law mentality. And when we have the law mentality, obeying Christ is a labor. And it was never meant to be that way. And we're going to, we're going to get into that in, when we get into Galatians 3. Okay. Here's, I'm done with that. If you have any questions, don't raise your hands. I can't answer them. I'm moving on. I want to get into the main question. And the main question is, what is the place of the law? What does the law accomplish? And this is going to apply for us as we come to Christ. And it's then going to apply to us as we live in Christ. So the first two chapters, Paul develops the problem. 
The problem is a different gospel. The problem is that the circumcision group, look over there in chapter 2, verse 12, the circumcision group has like dropped this poisonous, different gospel, different spirit, different Jesus even gospel poison in their midst and it's gone off like a bomb and Paul is trying to contain it, okay? It comes from the circumcision group. He says this, before certain men came from James. So these people believe in Jesus, or at least they say they do. Because he later calls them false brothers. Think about that. Wow, these guys, James was like the head of the church in Jerusalem. James had his head on, head screwed on straight. I, I don't know why, but these guys, they're from the, the group of Pharisees we find out in, in another passage in scripture. They're from the group of Pharisees. They say they believe in, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't get it. And here's what the, here's the different gospel. Faith plus Law. Faith plus law. I mean, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but now you've got to follow the law. You've got to be good. You have to obey. You have to keep the commands. And if you don't do that, you're, you're either not going to make it to heaven and you won't be saved, or you're going to be a really bad Christian. Faith plus the law. That's the different gospel. The second section that we're going to see here, chapters 3 through 4, is Paul's solution. That's obviously the right gospel, Paul's gospel, but it is faith alone. Faith alone. It's not faith plus the law, but faith alone. Here's how relevant this question is, and how ignorant the, the church is about this subject. Now, I, I'm, I don't, I want to be careful. The church. Um, those who claim to be Christians. 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, by the way. Uh, they did a Gallup poll and are you a born, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Are you born again Christian? No, I'm not. 80% yet said, yes, I'm a Christian. I think it was 10 to 20% said, yes, I'm born again. The first group believes in faith in the law. And the second group, I would venture to say, believes in faith alone. I remember going door to door years ago for a church in northern, northern Delaware. And I was asking them uh, certain questions. One of them was a Christian. Uh, are you a Christian? And many of them would say yes. And then I would say, so what, what was it? What, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they would, they would start talking about all the good things they do. All the good things. And I said, well, does Jesus play a part? Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's almost as if it's an afterthought. I'm really good. I'm really good. Oh yeah, but then there's Jesus. I remember that in church and in my CCD class. Is that what they call it? CCD in, in, Catholic CCD. And I remember in my CCD class, they, they talked about Jesus and the cross and resurrection. And the few times that I went to church on Chris on Easter, um, we did the Stations of the Cross. 
And I do remember Jesus died, and I've seen the movie Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the six-hour one, so I've got to be a Christian, right? And they don't understand what we're going to get into because that is a different gospel. And we're going to see why that's a different gospel. The third thing, chapters 5 and 6, is the application. We're, getting to, we're going to get into the life in the Spirit. What does that mean? Because many of us think, well, faith plus works, all of that, that has only to do with the gospel, which has only to do with my salvation. And I'm going to say, pardon me, but the gospel has everything to do with how I live my life today. And faith plus the law has everything to do with how I live today. Not just how I got saved, but it has everything to do with life in the spirit. And we're going to need to look into that. Okay, so let's begin this. I'm going to read to you from Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I'm reading from the NIV. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, listen to that, deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel. That is, mix it, pervert, twist it, the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, which, by the way, happened in Islam, an angel appeared and preached a different gospel to Muhammad. It happened in Mormonism. An angel appeared to uh, Joseph Smith and preached a different gospel to him. Okay? Both of those were faith plus works. Okay? Both of them. Very strongly so. All right. So even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, cursed, eternally condemned is what my version says. As we have already said, so now I say again, he, he wants to make this, he wants to drive it home. Get this. Did you hear me the first time? I'll say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Anathema. Understand this, that part of what chapters one and two is about is not just unveiling what the problem is and how it happened, but he is trying to tell them that the gospel that he originally preached to them was given to him, not by hearsay, not because he heard it from someone, maybe he got it misunderstood, maybe he just had this passion so much against the law because he couldn't keep it, and he had such a, a guilt trip, and it, it just it wrecked him, okay? And that's why he's against adding the law. No, he says this, I received it, directly from Jesus himself. Do you see that there? Chapter 1, verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That probably happened very shortly after he got converted. He was three years in Arabia which would include Lebanon, Syria, east and west of Damascus. Um, and he was, we don't know exactly where, but for three years, he was tutored at the feet of Jesus. What 
did that look like? Oh my goodness. Did it happen in his prayer time? Did he actually see Jesus when he revealed it? We don't know. He doesn't get into that because for Paul, it's totally irrelevant. I received it from Jesus. Okay? From Jesus. These other people, they received it from an angel of light. But Paul, I'm talking about Joseph Smith, Muhammad. Paul, he received it directly from Jesus. Then he began preaching it. Then he went to Jerusalem and it was confirmed. Yes, this in fact is the gospel. Faith alone, not faith plus the law. Because Judaizers from the circumcision group, okay, they're called Judaizers also, they came into the body of Christ. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I see he fulfilled all of this stuff. Head knowledge. Got it. And then they also introduced the law, faith plus the law. And this is what they said. Unless the Gentiles get circumcised, they ain't going to heaven. They're not saved. So at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, around 48, 49 AD, they convened. Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem. They he pulled the church together. They answered this question. The apostles and elders answered this question, okay? And Paul is basically saying, the gospel that I preached to you, that's the true gospel. It was not only taught me by Jesus himself, but it was confirmed to the apostles that actually physically sat at the feet of Jesus during his earthly ministry. So the gospel that I preached to you, that's the true gospel. What these other people are preaching is not. Here's what he says then in chapter 2, starting with verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in the law. Is that what your version says? By faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Okay. Paul gives us, in like one sentence or less, the gospel in his introduction. Can I just tell you, don't just skip over introductions to books in the Bible. By introductions, I don't mean what man has to say. In that introduction, I'm talking about what the author has to say. Okay, And he says this in verse 3 and 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just skip this. Let's just head right to the meat of the book. No. Who, listen to this, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. It is not just enough for Christ to rescue us from our sins and be saved, but he rescued us from this present evil age, the desires that appeal to our flesh. He rescued us from that. Do you want to know how he did it? How do we source that? It is by going to the cross. It's the gospel. Today, do you want to know how to live in this present evil age and be rescued from it so that it does not pull you in to its, its patterns and mindsets and ways, it, you got to go back to the cross. And so the cross rescues us. Yes, by the cross we're forgiven of our sins, but he, it rescues us 
by his death on the cross, rescues us from this present evil age. Now, we're going to get into that in chapters 5 and 6. That's the application. Okay, and the application is life and the spirit. How does that come together as a Christian? You know, I, 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 I don't have to observe the law. I just have to believe. And what, how do you do this thing? Because I feel so guilty when I don't follow the laws of God and it feels so heavy. And I'm going to say it's because you're missing like the main point here that we're going to get to there. All right. All right. Now, let me put this up here. This then is the gospel that Paul preached. Uh oh, is this going down? There we go. There we go. I like that. Okay. Okay, so here's here's now the gospel that Paul preaches. The cross. In the cross, we have forgiveness. In the cross, everything, even when we get down to here, but we're not going to do that yet, everything comes to us. So the cross is the source of everything that I am, have, etc. as a Christian. What is my response? It is not faith in the law, because the law can't justify anyone, and we're going to see why that's the case in a moment, but faith in Jesus, faith alone in Jesus. When I have faith in Jesus, that then produces, by God's grace, justification, Okay. The cross, an event that happened, his resurrection to demonstrate he was victorious and can now actually forgive your sins, justify you, implement these benefits. The the cross is absolutely important. A crossless gospel, excuse me, excuse me, a a resurrectionless cross has no power. Okay? A resurrectionless cross has no power. Okay, so the cross is an event. This is what God did in time-space history. Our response to that is faith, and then God, by his grace, justifies us. Now, justifying is not just a declaration of innocence. Okay? It is a declaration of righteous. It's not just like in a court of law saying, you're not guilty, which means... Okay, you're not a sinner, but you ain't righteous either. It's just that we're not charging you because there's not enough evidence. That is not justification. Justification, actually, God pounds the gavel and says, you are righteous. I am declaring you righteous. What? How can that be? I've just given my heart to Christ. What righteous acts have I done? And so, number one, it declares us righteousness, but Christ's righteousness His perfect life is now imputed or given or credited. That's the word what credit is. It can be translated credited or imputed. That is Christ's righteousness that Romans so awesomely gets into that he's given us, okay? And that's the righteousness that I stand. So when the devil tries to accuse you, the reason why it can't stick is not just because your sins are forgiven, but He's pointing at at what? The righteousness of Christ. Because that's what God sees. Mike Curtis, yeah, I see the righteousness of my son on him. What about him, Satan? He's speechless. He has been shut up because he can't accuse because of the cross. 
Okay? Christ's righteousness has now been given to me, and for that reason, then, I have right standing with God. Now, many people think faith plus law in order to gain a right standing before God. I will... Woo! Okay. I am going to just put it like this. Can you see it? I'll use the chair. That sounds good. That looks good. That looks good. Okay, I do have some more writing. We'll see how I can do that. All right. Now, that is the gospel. And now the benefits that flow out of my being declared righteous. Well, I forgot something. No, I didn't either. Okay. Number one is life. 321. It says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? We're actually going to dig into that a little bit more later, but is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. In other words, the law didn't come and do away with the promise that we're going to get at to shortly. It didn't do that. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But there's no law that imparts life. As a matter of fact, it gets into it in the next few verses, it actually brings death. Because it convicts me of sin and shows me to be a sinner. So no law can bring life. What can? The gospel. The cross. Faith is my response, and we're going to get into what that actually even means, and justification. That is God's grace. Did Mike Curtis do anything? Did Mike Curtis in some way earn a right standing with God? Absolutely not, because Mike Curtis can't. Mike Curtis is dead in his sins. He can't do that. Jesus had to do all of that for me. Okay. Um, so the benefits are life. It would be this inheritance that we see in 3.18 that says, for if the inheritance that was given to Abraham, that we now have, that says all nations will be blessed through you. That's the inheritance, okay? And, and it deals with... Um, okay, so the inheritance is based on a promise. The inheritance goes all the way back to Abraham, and that promise that all nations will be blessed, that inheritance that I will receive, did not change when Moses added the law. It didn't change it. It didn't subvert it. It didn't say, you know what? You used to be saved by faith. Now you've got to be saved by the law. That's not what the law did. The law was added for a different reason. Not because faith was inadequate. Faith couldn't do it. All right? And so we have this inheritance even such that we become, by this justification and right staying in with God, I now am a child of God. He says right here in chapter 3, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We're going to get into that. Let me make sure that... Uh, well, I hope I... Mm-hmm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So... I am now a child of God, and because of that, I am an heir. 
and an heir receives an inheritance, an inheritance, okay? So the heir receives the inheritance. This is what we've been given. So life, inheritance, blessing, and he says right there in chapter 3 also, promise of the Spirit, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith, excuse me, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And this is going to be so key when we move into chapters 5 and 6, okay? All right, so this is the gospel right here, and these are the benefits of the gospel. All right. Wow, for some reason, it is not cooling down in here too well today. 72, right? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that is really unusual. I. Okay. All right. Um, hmm. Okay, okay. What then is wrong with faith plus the law? Why can't that work? Why can't I believe in Jesus and then keep the law and expect to be saved, expect to receive blessings, inheritance, okay? Why, what's wrong with that formula, if you will? Why is it faith alone? Why is that so important? Faith alone, not faith plus works or faith plus the moral law or the ceremonial law or anything else. Why? Faith. What is faith? Faith is receiving. To as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become sons or children Faith is receiving. Like a gift is given to you, you're receiving the gift, okay? Faith in Christ is then a commitment to, a surrendering to Christ, okay? It basically says, so faith says this, I can't, but you can, or you did, Okay, you, you, you accomplished my salvation on the cross, but I cannot keep the law. I cannot be obedient. I cannot be righteous and therefore have a right standing before you, God. And so Christ gives me his righteousness by faith. So I can't, but you can. What does the law say? The law basically says I can. I can do this. I can not lie. I can not steal. I can keep the Sabbath. I can obey God. I can do all of these. That's what the law says. But see, that doesn't work. We see that clearly in the Old Testament. That's why God has to put his spirit in us to empower us to follow him. Okay. So the law says this, I can. Faith says, I can't, but you can. Now let's put those together. I can't, but you can, plus I can. Let me just say that again. I can't, but you can, and plus I can. Do you see how contradictory that is? So the first thing we should see is that the law contradicts faith, or better, the law contradicts grace. The law has no place in the face of grace. Because the salvation, what God does for me, is all about grace. All these things that he gives to me in being justified, that's grace, 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 grace. 
So the law says, though, I can earn it. I can. But it contradicts grace. Number two, the reason why this can't work, faith plus law. Number one, you got that. It contradicts grace. Number two, it says this. It says the cross was inadequate. It wasn't enough. Because I've got to do something to help it along. It's not just me receiving. I've got to do something. I've got to in some way earn this. And the cross, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. We call that the finished work of Christ. The cross, period. It's done. Salvation's completed. What do I need to do? Receive it. But when you add the law, the law says, okay, we're going to receive it, but... The finished work of Christ is apparently not finished because I need to add to it. So the law says the cross is not enough. It's got to be up to me too. And I'm going to tell you what, not only does that contradict grace, how offensive is that to God that me as a sinner can add anything to his grace, his power, what he can do. Okay. Let me give you an illustration that's going to uh, that's going to help us, and especially as we begin to transition to the the solution of this problem. Um, and we're going to take a break here in just a, a few minutes. When I use in this illustration, when I say I, I mean. I representing all of mankind, from Adam all the way to me. A very wealthy man purchased a mansion and an estate, and it goes for miles and miles. Huge mansion and an estate. And he allows me to live there. He allows me to live there. He's kind of like brought me right into his home, right into his family, giving me all of these privileges, like I were a son. But something happens. And it's my fault. But the enemy came in. He stole me away and wooed my heart in rebellion against this owner. This owner of the mansion and the estate. The owner, excuse me, the enemy overran the estate, took it captive, and took me captive because I let him. The owner is not happy about this situation whatsoever and devises a battle plan to retake the mansion and the estate. And he does so at a very high cost, as a matter of fact, the cost of his one and only son. And then after regaining control of this mansion and the estate, he then turns to me and he says, I want to give this to you. I want you to come and live here again. This is yours. 
So here's my response. This is what the Judaizers say. Wow, that's that's pretty awesome. I like that deal. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pull out of my wallet here a thousand dollars, and I'm going to give this to you, and I will receive this. Now, what he has he ha, he really truly thinks that by giving that money, he has earned all of that inheritance. He has earned it, and not only has he earned it. He now owns it. Why do I think I own it? Because I paid for it. It was purchased. It was recaptured at the price of his only son. And you think a measly thousand dollars is going to do anything so that you've earned it or somehow you're the owner? Wow, do you have a misunderstanding of this gift I'm giving you. Wow, really? You think a thousand dollars... I mean, how many of you would like to have $1,000 in your back pocket right now? That's a lot of money for me. There's a lot of things I could do with that. But in the eyes of God, at the cost of his son, it is an insult. You're not receiving this as a gift. Instead, you're thinking, hang on a second. I don't like the idea of a gift because that obligates me. I'm going to pay for it. Okay. I'm going to pay. I'm going to give you $1,000. Number one, it gives the impression that I earned it. And if I earned it, it is no longer a gift. It despises the real cost of that mansion, which was the price of his son. I despise that by offering it, by offering my money. That way I've, I've earned it. By grace are you saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't earn it. Secondly, if I own it, then I'm going to use my resources for the upkeep because I'm going to be a good owner. This is my property and I'm going to use my resources And that now gets into chapters 5 and 6. We are not owners. We now are completely dependent upon the owner, the real owner. If I'm the owner, I don't need to be dependent on anybody. I'll just use my own resources. Okay. So faith is total reliance upon Christ. The law says I must also rely upon myself. So faith and law, really, this different gospel, since the law negates faith, it's really law alone. It has nothing to do with faith. As a matter of fact, it, it reeks of a misunderstanding of what faith really is. Faith plus law is law. That is all it is. It is law. It is me saying I can. It is law alone and reliance upon myself. So faith plus law undermines faith alone. Faith plus law undermines the adequacy and finished work of the cross. Faith plus law undermines the righteousness (coughs) we have received. So which gospel is right? Is Paul's gospel right that we see here? Or is the Judaizers gospel right? 
So for that reason, Paul says, this right here, just so you know, God showed me this. God showed me it. Man didn't. And this gospel that they heard from the feet of Jesus is exactly what God showed me. Okay? And if anyone preaches a gospel, then this one right here, he is under a curse. All right, now... We're going to just take a, a, a minute break. I want you to stand up and stretch your legs. And we are going to get into parts two and three in just a moment. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. This is really not wanting to erase very well. Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah, that looks gross. It does. you want some vinegar? No. I'm going to use blue. Okay, stretch your legs. Put the clothespins over your eyelids. Keep them open. Grab your cup of coffee. We got another 40 minute, 35, 40 minutes. <laughs> Excuse me. Wow. Okay, turn in your Bibles to chapter 3. We've already outlined what the problem is a different gospel. <clears throat> we now need to get a rock-solid view of what the solution is, which is faith alone. We've already started on that. Um, <clears throat> I want us to... I'm just going to read right now the first two verses. Are you ready? Galatians 3, verses 1 through 2. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, that is, by Paul's words... By your, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So this is the reception of the Spirit. In Paul's language, that happens at conversion. Okay. The empowerment of the Spirit, which is closely related, he actually gets into in verse five, but regardless, this is, he's talking about your conversion. Did you receive the spirit, this promise right here? Oh, this promise. Let me get it now. Did you receive the, this promise of the spirit because you observed the law or by faith in Jesus Christ? I want you to see something here. This is how uh, riled up Paul, he, he does call them foolish, by the way, but he says, who has bewitched you? Now, the Greek word for bewitched right here means to bewitch someone, and the remedy for this bewitchment was you had to spit three times to get rid of that bewitchment, that curse that was upon you, okay? 
you had to spit three times. Now, I'm, I'm getting this from Bauer and Gingrich. It's a Greek lexicon. It's like probably the most famous Greek lexicon out there. The, the Greek authors, when they used this term, the Greek writers, they, the answer, the solution was you had to spit three times. Now, turn with me to chapter four. Verse seven, uh, seven, I think it's 17. No, chapter four. What, oh, excuse me. I am like, wow. Okay. I, I think I, uh, I lost that, uh, that verse. I think I wrote the wrong verse down. Um, when you welcomed me, you did not despise me. Is it 14? Okay. Yes. Thank you. There we go. Very good. 414. How did I write down? Yeah. He says this, even though my illness was a trial to you, it was through an illness that he visited him in the first place to preach the gospel. Like apparently Paul had other intentions. He got sick. And they took a detour, more than likely, to Pisidian Antioch, the first place where he preached the gospel in Galatia, and stuff happened. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. That word for contempt is the word ectuo. Seriously, ectuo. Can I just say, what does that sound like? Ectuo. Thank you. It literally means to spit. You know, when I was with you the first time, you did not spit upon me. Now, that, figuratively, it means to treat with contempt, but you did not spit upon me. You didn't have to go. Okay. But now. You're bewitched. You're bewitched. And spitting three times ain't going to get rid of that. There is only one remedy, and I'm going to tell you what that is. You are bewitched. I am going to undeceive you. I am going to bring this remedy to you. Because the first time, you welcomed me. But now, it's as if they're spitting upon him. Okay? That's how serious this is. All right. <clears throat> Faith, excuse me, verse 6. Consider Abraham. I'm going to come back to verses 3 through 5 in, in a little bit. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness was imputed to him. Okay. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so faith, we can see here, faith then actually leads to, and I'm going to insert, well, Faith actually leads to justification, which means this 
imputed righteousness, which is what he's talking about here. And as a result, all nations will be blessed through you. You have faith. It was credited as righteousness. And now all nations will be blessed through you. They're going to receive an inheritance. They're going to receive life, the promise of the spirit, etc. Now I want, to sh- I want us to look at something here. And it was this verse that I'm going to read to you that completely revolutionized Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. He believed in faith plus law, that that would somehow give him a right standing before God. But he was so overwhelmed with guilt, he almost went insane. He discovered this truth, and it was like a burden lifted off his shoulders. He had read this verse before. Why didn't he get it then? I'm going to read it to you now. Maybe some of you already know. It's found in Romans 1.17, by the way. And it's found here in Galatians <clears throat> excuse me, 3.11. It says this. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, law does not lead to justification or righteousness. Being declared righteous. The law, excuse me. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because, he quotes this passage from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Hmm. Think about that. Just think about that for a moment. The righteous will live by faith. Here's how Paul, as a Roman Catholic priest, understood this passage from Romans and Galatians, a quote from the Old Testament, all the way up to his conversion. Here's how he understood it. The righteous, righteous man produces faith that he lives by every day. The righteous man produces faith every day. The righteous Man, righteous, live by faith. Day by day, I, I, I need to, the righteous man will produce faith. But how do I become righteous? I, must, I guess I've got to keep the law. I guess I've got to keep the law. And he couldn't keep the law. But actually, it is the other way around. Actually, Faith is what produces or brings about me now being righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, the being credited with righteousness. Now, the literal translation of this verse is the righteous man, listen to this, the righteous man, are you listening? Has drawn life out of faith. That's what the verse literally translated means. It uses a Greek word, ek, out of faith. The righteous man lives out of faith, draws out of it. it, it again, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, that Greek lexicon, excellent insight. Uh, it, it says this word, ek, can mean from or out of, but at times it means this. I, wrote, I think I wrote it down here, didn't I? Here we go. Um, I'm going to find it. Here we go. 
as it's used in this passage and in Romans, ek, and then faith. Ek mean denotes origin, cause, as in begetting and birthing. So therefore, faith has birthed this life that I live. For the righteous man, he draws, he has drawn from faith and has received life. And that is why he is a righteous man. So it is not righteous man seeks faith, but rather by faith, he then becomes this righteous man. And he has drawn out of faith this life. Okay, so faith then becomes the source of this life that he has, that he lives in. And when Martin Luther discovered this and understood this, it was, it was as if his eyes were opened and he said, I've got this completely backwards. I have been seeking life from the law and I've got to seek life in faith in Christ. I've got to draw this resource of life from faith and not from my, not from my good works, not from the law. Okay. Now, the law was added and when it was, it did not supplant faith. It did not supplant, undermine the promises of God. All nations, Abraham, listen to me, all nations will be blessed through you. You believe and it's credited to you as righteousness. The law didn't come by and say, okay, it's not by faith anymore. Now it's going to be by, do, by observing the law. It didn't happen that way. Rather, the law was introduced so that men would understand that they are sinners and that they can't do this they can't follow God by themselves. Okay? And it says right here in, where is it? Here, verse, tw- would have been helpful if I wrote the verse down, but it's right here in verse, tw- I'm going to read verse 22, okay? And all the way through 25. But the scripture, see, life can't come from obeying the law, But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We're we're locked up. We're enslaved to our sins so that what was promised to Abraham, look at all these blessings I'm going to give you, have been given through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you don't have the power to keep the law. You're completely inadequate to keep the law. That's not the place of the law. The place of the law is not to source or, 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 or receive this resource of strength and right standing before God. That's not why it was given. Because you're held captive in sin, prisoner of sin, so that what was promised to Abraham being given through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, but was in the future, okay, for Abraham. It might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, okay, not the faith of Abraham, but faith in Jesus Christ. Very clear. The gospel, this whole idea of faith in Christ, his sacrifice, resurrection, it was veiled in the Old Testament. Couldn't see it real well, like looking through a glass dimly. There was a fog. There was like a veil over people's eyes. They couldn't get it. But when it happened, it's like, whoa, hello. It's throughout the Old Testament 
Why couldn't we see this? Because you were a prisoner of sin and blinded to it. You just couldn't. Even now, Abraham or, or and people who truly had faith, even so, they still didn't really get it until the apostles proclaimed it. Now it's completely revealed, okay? And he says this, before this faith, that is the cross, believing in Jesus, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So that the law was, listen to this, put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. There is a Greek word that's used twice in this passage, and it is this word here. Okay, pedagogos. We get the word pedagogue. Now, I'm going to use the word pedagogue. I'm okay with that. But the word pedagogue means teacher. In in it's it's borrowed from the Greek, but it lost its meaning. Pedagog, a pedagogos, does not mean a teacher. This is this is what it says. He is an attendant, usually a slave, a custodian, a guide. Literally, pedagogos means boy leader, not a leader who's a boy, but one who leads a boy. Okay. And when we get into chapter four, that's going to make sense. So he is a boy leader. That is the man, usually a slave, whose duty it was to conduct the boy or youth to and from school and to superintend his conduct generally. I'm quoting, of course. He was not a teacher or a didaskalos. We get didactic from this word. He was not a didaskalos. He wasn't a teacher He was a moral guide. Hey, don't do that. No, 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 no. Climb down off that table, please. Did I give you that to eat? I did not. That's not clean. That's unclean. Get that out of your mouth right now. All right. Who told you that you could do that? I didn't. That's the pedagogue. That's the one who, that's, it was usually a slave put in charge to superintend the son of the master. Israel was had the law leading it. In the Old Testament, what was the place of the law? It was Israel's leader. Remember that. The place of the law in the Old Testament was to lead the people. Even though they were heirs, chapter 4, What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, okay, child, he's the Israel, you're the heir, all right, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. What was that time set by the father? When faith was revealed. So the pedagogue, the law, led him, led Israel those under law led Israel to faith in Christ. That was the place of the law. It convicted me of sin. Tell me what a failure I am. Now, did it reveal the holiness of God? Yes, it did. 
But what am I to do with that? Because every time I try, it seems I fail. There's nothing good in me without Christ. There's nothing good in me that empowers me to do that. I don't want to be led by the law. I am powerless to, to be led by the law. And so as we move into the New Testament, the law is not our leader anymore. It's not our leader anymore. It's not our pedagogue anymore. It's not the one who constantly gave us supervision. Do this and don't do this. Okay? Now, I want to go back to chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Because now I want to get into this question. So what about Christians? The place of the law for Christians. Okay? And the focus is not going to be as much as the place of the law, but what now does lead us? It's not the law. It's not the pedagogue. And as we get into these verses, he says here, um, starting with verse 3, Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So you begun with the Spirit, you believed, called sons of God, received the Spirit, you're now an heir. Are you trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? They were persecuted, if it really was for nothing. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles? And I'm going to come back to that. That's awesome as we unwrap that. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, because you obey, or because you believe what you heard? Okay? So he's basically... Finding the root again in faith alone. You began with the Spirit. Now you're trying to be, in this Greek word for human effort is you're trying to be perfected or become complete, mature in the flesh. I'm going to word this differently in some marketing terminology. You used to source the Spirit. And now you're sourcing self, the flesh, the, the body, the, the meat, the thinking I can do this. Now here's how important this is. Let's look at verse five. I want to just camp out here for a few minutes. Okay. He says that, he says, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you. Can I ask you this? When were these miracles done among This is key, actually. When were these miracles done? Was it when Paul went to Galatia and God healed the, this, remember the leper with the, the shriveled hand and he healed it and many started believing, actually called them Jupiter and Mercury, I think it was, and we're going to worship you now. Paul says, what are you doing? Okay, this is, this is silliness, honestly. This is really silly. We are men. We are not gods. And it was it those miracles that led them to believe in Jesus? I, I'm going to have to say the context tells me, no, that's, that's not when these miracles came. Did you receive the Spirit? Did God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law. It couldn't be the miracles that Paul did. These are miracles, and the Greek word here is dunamis. Okay? 
You're probably familiar with that term, dunamis, power, might, explosive, miraculous power. Did God do these things in your midst after you received the Spirit? And and maybe even as you laid hands on one another and the Spirit of God moved and, and miracles happened, did he did God do this because you observed the law or because you had faith? Now let me let me show you the relevance of this. In South Korea, excuse me, by, let me back up and say this. These miracles, this display of God's glory happens during revival time, okay? Very easily, we see this during revival time. So my question to you is this has everything to do with not just God doing miracles, but revival in America. Am I going to, is God going to bring revival in America? Because you observe the law and you do this, 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 and this like a formula? Or is it because you have faith? And we're going to need to dig into that as we go into chapters 5 and 6. And and so, what do people do? South Korea, look at the churches in South Korea. The pastors, no lie, the pastors pray five hours a day. And what does God, God works miracles in their midst. There's revival. These churches, they're not a few hundred or a few thousand. They're hundreds of thousands in their midst. And revival, after the war in Korea, the revival broke out in that place. And these churches, they're not small churches. And miracles happen. And pastors pray for five hours. So Americans, we get a hold of this idea. Okay. We're going to see revival in America. So what do we have to do? Did you hear me say, ask that? What do we have? We got to pray five hours a day. So, okay, we're going to, come on guys, we're going to gather the pastors and we're going to pray five hours a day. We're going to pray five hours. We're going to pray and pray and pray. No, as a matter of fact, we're going to, on some days, we're going to pray six and seven hours a day. And what happens? There's no revival. Why is that? Because we have looked at prayer like a formula. We have looked at, if I obey, if I do this, then God is going to do this. That is this, it's in the context, it's, it's the same thing as saying, if I observe the law, I'm going to get saved. What? Absolutely not. So what makes me think as a Christian, by doing all of these, if I'm just good enough, then God is going to use me in powerful ways. If I'm holy enough, if I obey enough, then I'm going to be this purified vessel ready for the master's use. I'm quoting actually from 2 Timothy 2. But there's there's a part of this that we are totally missing. And we're going to get to that when we get into chapter uh, 5 and 6. But he is saying, do you want revival in your midst? You are not going to get it by following some formula, by observing the law, by this prayer being duty, prayer being this obligation, prayer being, if we just pray, then that is I am doing, that is human effort. So how can we tell the difference? How can we tell the difference? Prayer, they pray for five hours in Korea, revival. We pray in America five hours, nothing. We implement church growth principles. And yeah, the churches grow, but where's the spirit? And we implement these 
formulas. And if we just do this and we are, again, the marketing, I, we are sourcing self. And if I do this and I'm going to take the law and if I just follow the law and this, that or the other, then the end of the equation is revival happens. God does miracles. And I tell you, when you do that, miracles won't happen. Revival will not fall. What do we have to do? Now, he uses this term as we now get into section three here about life in the spirit, the application He uses the term walk in the spirit. That when you walk in the spirit, when you source the spirit, when you rely totally on the spirit by faith, not by observing the law, which is I can, but by faith, which says I can't, but you can. When you by faith access the spirit, that's when the flesh does not control you. As a matter of fact, this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, literally led in the Spirit, you are not under law. Do you see the parallel there? Led by the Spirit, under law. Under law means being led by the law. We're not led by the law anymore. We're actually led by the Spirit. Now, let me skip over here. I want to make sure that I don't, because I don't have a whole lot of time, and I want to make sure. One second here. Who? No, no. Wait. What was the verse that you just read about who led? That's 518. If we are led by the Spirit, in other words, if our pedagogue is no longer the law, but it's the Spirit, if it, if we're being, and I don't even want to really use that term pedagogue because that describes his function, and the Spirit is so much more than just a guide. But if we are led in the Spirit, if we are sourcing the Spirit, we are no longer under the law or being led by the law as a pedagogue or sourcing the law. The law can't impart life. So I'm not going to put this formula together and expect God to do something powerful. It doesn't happen that way. Now, remember, Ezekiel says that the Spirit moves us, empowers us to obey God. Duty and obligation are weak power sources and actually bypass faith and reliance on the Spirit. My question then is, what is leading us? What's driving us? What's motivating us? What's compelling us? Do it, if we stumble, well, I've just got to get back up and do it. I've got to do it right. Christians can get caught up in this. We cannot find our source in the law. The challenge to pray five hours a day, a sense of duty or obligation, or I've got to do this. We, we can't do that. That's not, that is not the place of the law. Law is not the leader. That is the place of the spirit. And it can only be accessed by faith, which is surrender. Now let me, let me give you this illustration. Um, 
the word for the, the word ruach and the word pneuma, it actually begins with a P. We get pneumonia from that, by the way. Pneuma means breath, wind, or spirit. So the ruach of God is the spirit of God or the breath of God. This is why prophetically Ezekiel was told to breathe upon the bones and the dry bones in that valley because it was symbolic or prophetic, a prophetic act of God breathing upon those bones and the spirit of God empowering those bones and then being raised up as an army. Breath, breathe, wind, spirit. They, they, they are all translations of that Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma. The pneuma of God, the spirit of God. So let me use this illustration. In order, in order for me to exhale, no, let me start over. For me to have life, I first inhale, and then I exhale, and I have life. Okay? I breathe in the Spirit. I access the Spirit by faith, and then I breathe out. I exhale. I then pray the five hours. I then obey the moral law. But it's because I've accessed the spirit. And I tell you what, every time, and except it doesn't call it the law or, or it, it calls it, calls it the fruit of the spirit in chapter five. As I inhale the spirit, I exhale the fruit of the spirit. As I become completely dependent by faith, total reliance upon the spirit, I then produce in my life the works of the Spirit. And this brings life. When I breathe in the Spirit, I exhale in prayer. Let me word it that way. And the only way, listen, the only way I can exhale is if I first inhale. The only way in which I can have life is this process of inhaling and exhaling. I've got to do both. But it doesn't start with exhaling, doesn't it? It doesn't. I take in oxygen by breathing in and then I breathe out to get rid of the bad stuff or, or just, I don't want to take the illustration there, but that, so I breathe in the Spirit by faith. I access the Spirit. And there's something inside of me that is motivated now and empowered. I can pray five hours a day. And then as I pray, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, they can only do that if by if at first they breathe in the Spirit. And as I breathe in the Spirit, now I exhale this prayer and God's response is life. This is what I'm going to do. I will forgive your sin. I No, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin and I will heal by my miraculous power your land. Do you want to see miracles in our day? Yes, you need to pray, but you have to inhale first. 
Then you can exhale. If my people who are called, prayer is so crucial. But if we do it because the Koreans do it and we treat it like a formula, and this is what I should do, and as I put these formulas and these things in place, we're positioned for growth. No, you're not. You're positioned to rely totally on yourself. And God will not bring revival. You might see a church growing, but you will not see revival. You will not see miracles. You will not see an outpouring of the Spirit. You will not see the glory of God. So that like Ezekiel, he fell down in the presence of the glory of God as it filled the temple. That temple was the church. If we're going to see the glory of God fill the church, we have to inhale. We have to breathe in the Spirit. We have to access the Spirit 24-7. We do this by faith. We walk by faith. We start with faith, and it's faith all the way. The law simply flows from that. I can't keep the law. The Spirit in me has to motivate me and compel me and push me and, and inspire me and work through me and transform me, and then I can actually obey God. But if I don't, if I'm not abiding in Christ, rooted in Christ, accessing the Spirit by faith, I will not produce much fruit. Galatians 5, if you're not led by the Spirit, if you're not walking in the Spirit, you will not produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's impossible. So we can't be led by the law. We, meaning under the law. We have to be led by the Spirit. And I'm just going to conclude with this right here. Ah! I need five more minutes. Give me five more minutes. Okay, chapter six. Do not be deceived. Chapter six, verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows... Now, I'm going to forgive the NIV translators. They insert a word here that, in my humble opinion, is detrimental to the text. Okay? It says it this way. The, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please, that's an inserted word. It's not in the Greek. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Here's why that I think is important. I think this is important. If you are sowing to the spirit, whatever that means, we're not going to get into it right now, but if I sow to the spirit, so that I'm pleasing God, so that God is happy with me? Is that why I receive life? Why am I so concerned about making God happy with me? If he's not happy with me, then what is he? He's grieved with me? He, he's angry with me? He's displeased with me? You see, these are concepts foreign to those in the New Covenant. Because the cross, the cross appeased the wrath of God. The cross paid everything so that God is no longer angry with me. I don't have to do, 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 accomplish this and accomplish this and observe the law so that God's happy with me. I'm not going to sow to the Spirit so the Spirit's happy with me. No. So, so how does he say? Those who... The one who sows, not to please the Spirit, but the one who sows to the Spirit. And again, you can understand that differently so that it's actually biblically accurate. It's just that when we insert that word please, it's, we suddenly get this, well, what do I have to do 
to please him. And this sowing to the Spirit has nothing to do with do. It has nothing to do with me following the law. Actually, let me write it up like this. I think this is going to be easier for you to see. Oh, no. Okay. I just bought these. <laughs> okay. So here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sow to the Spirit. By sowing to the Spirit, I will now be empowered to obey God. Uh, okay, hang on. I didn't leave myself enough room because I'm going to draw something, but I'm going to actually illustrate. Oh, the blue re-raced really well. Okay, so here we go. So, to the Spirit, obedience, life. Okay. When I access the Spirit and I find myself completely dependent on the Spirit and I keep, I keep realizing every day, God, I can't do this, but you can. You will. You will live through me. That is your promise. That's what I'm going to believe. I am accessing that by faith. Not because of me and what I have accomplished, but because this is your promise. It's not based on what I've done. That's the law. It's based on what you have already done. It's based on God's grace. I am now accessing this grace of God as I surrender by faith. That's what faith is. As I believe God's promises. That is sowing to the Spirit. That is walking in the Spirit. That is the result of keeping in step with the Actually, Okay. So if I am walking in the Spirit, I am now empowered to obey God. I can actually fulfill the commands of God. And the result of this is life. Not because I'm obeying the law. Now, eternal life is not just heaven in my back pocket. He who believes has eternal life. That's not heaven in my back pocket. That is life. That is me, Mike Curtis, raised from the dead, living in this brand new life, empowered by the Spirit, obeying God as I source the Spirit. And as a result, I experience the com- more and more and more of what the Spirit has for me because I'm sourcing the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Last verse of chapter 5, which is, the fruit of the Spirit, and life flows from that. If you sow to the Spirit, if you sow to the Spirit, you will have life. Now, I don't want this obedience to be seen like I am doing this. So here's what I'm going to, I'm going to illustrate it this way. Ah, come on. Here we go. Okay. The Spirit brings life to me. And it's the spirit that works obedience, and it's the spirit that brings the life. God does not look at me and say, oh, Mike's obeying me. I'm going to give him life. 
No, Mike's accessing the Spirit, and he's now empowered to walk in the Spirit, and I'm going to pour out miracles. I'm going to pour out blessing. I'm going to bring revival. I'm going to bring this life. The, the more and more he's going to be able to walk into this inheritance because he is constantly accessing the Spirit. Crucifying the flesh has nothing to do with your willpower. Crucifying the flesh, which is obedience, has everything to do, not with the law, not with this duty, not with this, if I just do it enough, not with, okay, self-control is really spirit control over self, okay? It is, it is not me exercising my will to control me. That is how most Christians live. Instead, it is accessing the spirit. So it is spirit control so that self is controlled. Okay, and that is one of the fruits of the spirit. So how do I walk in the fruits of the spirit? By walking in the spirit, sowing to the spirit, accessing the spirit by faith. When this happens, God freely pours out his spirit. God freely works miracles. God freely brings revival. Is there a prayer a part of that? Yes, but it's not a formula. It's not a part of the law. As a matter of fact, I personally can't pray five hours every day. I can't do that. I really can't. I have tried, I I think the most I have probably, I'm I'm not even going to say I'm too embarrassed, but I don't know, maybe two hours? I don't think I've prayed longer than that. But if I'm sourcing this, if I am sowing to the Spirit, I can pray more than five hours. I could pray all day and all night. How many of you have ever prayed all night? (sighs) And yet there are men and women throughout history who have prayed all day, all night. As a matter of fact, there is one uh, Presbyterian man back in the 1600s in which he was a close friend of a very wealthy man who was a Christian. And that man died. And he, that, this Christian man refused to leave his side for three days. The guy was dead. People said, we need to get in there and we need to take care of it. And he refused to let them in. True story. And this is from a man in the present day denomination does not believe in this, by the way. And here he is for three days, day and night, he prays that this man would be raised from the dead. Now, the people today would look at that and say, you're insane. You know what? If God, if you prayed for a few minutes and God didn't answer, get up off the floor and just move on with life. He's dead. Let the pallbearers take him and put him in the ground. But there is a word of God birthed, a promise of God birthed in his spirit. And he prayed. And on the third day, God raised this man from the dead. Now, this is recorded in history books. This is what has happened. Now, um, I believe his name is Jack Deere in Surprised by the Voice of God records this. And he actually goes through these denominations. Many of them, very traditional, don't believe that God does miracles in our day, but not when they first began. They learned how to sow to the Spirit. They learned how to pray for hours on end, sourcing the Spirit. And God brought revivals. God raised the dead. God did miracles. And we see this throughout the church age. 
And so my, th- the question that I want to leave in our hands tonight is, do we truly want to see revival come? And in me, I say yes, but I say, God, show me, teach me how to be so fully dependent upon the Spirit, fully believing by faith, apprehending the power of the Spirit so that prayer is easy. It is a light burden and not this heavy burden I place upon myself by duty and obligation and formula. But I pray because I'm empowered by the Spirit both to pray and then the Spirit falls, brings life, works miracles, Galatians 3, 5, and brings revival. Did I pray? Yes, I did, but it wasn't because the, the, the South Koreans pray five hours. No, because I did what I do what they did. And I, I began to source the Spirit. I began to say, God, I, I can't even pray for two hours. And God is going to say, oh yeah? Let me show you. Te- let me teach you how to be so completely reliant upon me. And can I confess to you, I believe God has done that much in my life in the area of finances. But I, I find myself being wearied in prayer. Do you want to know? Because the very next passage, by the way, and I, and I forgot, I'm not, I'm going to conclude with this. He says, do not become weary in doing good. Do you want to know the antidote to weariness from doing good? When you keep doing things and serving and loving people and they reject it and they refuse to come to Christ. And he says, no matter what you do, nothing is happening. God, where are you? And that weariness is there because I'm not doing this. All of this obedience is me, me, me. It is what, this is what Bible tells me I've got to do. You're going to become weary. Paul says, do you want to know the antidote to weariness? It's this right here. Sow to the Spirit. Source the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's what you need to do. And when you do this, you will never grow weary. That burden will be light. You who are all weary and heavy laden, come to me. I just want to tell you today, if you're weary, if you feel a load on your shoulders, if you're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? Look how I've served you. Look how I've prayed. Where's the life? There is only one answer that I know of. One answer. So do the Spirit. And God is going to begin to show you, because he's still needing to teach me, what that even looks like. Totally, completely reliant on the Spirit of God in us. Let me pray. Father, I believe that through Galatians, you have revealed deep truths that in our day we are missing. And because we're missing it, we are not seeing revival. Because we're missing it, Miracles are few because we're missing it. We have learned not to walk in the spirit, but in our own power. 
And I'm just asking you, Father, would you be gracious and show us this deep truth of total, complete surrender and reliance upon God? And I'm asking you, Father, when we walk in this, and this is your promise, so I guess I don't even need to pray you're going to do it. But God, would you do miracles in our midst? Would you heal those marriages that are sowing into your spirit? Would you bring revival in this city as the followers of, not just the pastors, the followers of Jesus are sowing into the spirit and walking in the spirit and are so completely, utterly reliant upon you by faith. Prayer is like exhaling. I breathe in the spirit and I exhale in prayer and this is easy and it brings like, bring that to us, God. Bring that to each of our lives, to each of our families, in Jesus' name, amen.